Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. Welcome to Creepscast, the podcast where we share these scary stories to make your skin crawl. I'm your host, Mr. Creeps, and we'll be exploring the darkest corners of horror to bring you tales of terror that will haunt you long after this episode ends. So let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creeps' mind. I'm a time traveler from the year 2345. I'm so sorry for what's coming. Written by J.L. Goodwin, 1990. Okay, let me start off by saying that I know dang well that none of you are going to believe me. After all, at this stage in time, the idea of time travel is just barely moving from something which is shunned by the scientific community and the world in general to its infancy of being taken seriously. And you have so many people who LARP as time travelers who truly aren't, even right here on the internet. Heck, the time travel subreddit is full of them. But regardless of whether you believe or not, I assure you that I am a real one. I will say right off the bat that I won't give you my real name, for the simple reason that, well, I'm actually alive right now in 2023. To be more specific, the past version of me is alive right now, and I can't afford to let history change, for reasons I'll go into in a minute. I also won't get into much information about the future in relation to things such as politics or such, so please do not ask. But I suppose I should give a few rather vague details which may help convince you as time goes on that I am telling the truth. It may help convince the right people that my warning is real. For starters, less than two or three decades from now, not only have the cures for cancer and other major diseases been found, but they can be administered from a simple shot. In a way, the pandemic we went through helped accelerate their development. We also end up making death more of a choice than an inevitability. Life extension research being conducted right now leads to both the ability to live for centuries if not longer, but also retain our youthful bodies for as long as you wish, which means many of you reading this might still be alive in my time. I was one of those who jumped on the bandwagon after they had finished working the bugs out of it. I mean, imagine having the body of yourself in your 20s, with all the knowledge and wisdom that you accrue from living so long, not to mention being able to do all the things which a single natural lifetime wouldn't allow. It gets some pushback at first by people who worry about living beyond a natural lifetime. Gasoline is banned by the halfway point of this century, but synthetic fuel means people aren't forced into electric cars, which I was extremely happy about, because it meant that I could keep driving my Cadillac DeVille around. Although many people get hooked on the flying car craze that happens towards the end of the 21st century, not me though. 
I prefer staying on the ground. Trust me, mid-air accidents are not pretty. However, space travel took off after the Artemis missions put people back on the moon. A few years from now for you guys. And once the moon base and spaceport was constructed well, it was off to the races from there. Vacations to planets like Mars, along with planetary moons such as Europa and Titan, become regular occurrences even for those not so wealthy. And as for time travel, well, that took a little while longer than anticipated to actually work on, and that's the reason why I'm writing this now. You see, there were many discussions that happened as people began to take time travel more and more seriously. Not only to the future, which could already be done with a time dilation, but to the past. It almost became as much of a race for every country in the world as the space race in the 60s had been. Everyone wanted to be written into the history books for eternity, as the ones who had finally invented the ability to travel through time itself. But people weren't really rushing like they used to, when they only had a century or less to live. Scientists can work much longer, without worrying about retiring or dying. During the first part of this time, I honestly wasn't a part of the endeavors myself. I had more or less turned my life around from the second I realized I would be able to live far longer than I thought I would before. I made something of myself and without getting into too many specific details, as again I want my identity to remain protected, I will say that I became a best-selling author, an explorer who did everything from climbing Mount Everest on Earth and Olympus Mons on Mars, to using the vast wealth that I made from writing and other business endeavors to create underwater cities, similar in design to how Rapture from the Bioshock video game looked. I was living my best life from the latter half of the 21st century to the midway point of the 23rd, but there was something that kept pulling away at my mind all throughout it. You see, I had done so much, checked so many things off my bucket list, but there was one thing that hadn't happened yet. And if you guessed that, it was that I wanted to time travel, then congratulations, you've just won a trip for two to Europa. Ever since I had been a little child, growing up at the very tail end of the 20th century and the early 21st, I had wanted to visit the past. I wanted to do things such as attend the 9th annual Cannes Film Festival in 1956, to see Jacques Cousteau's The Silent World win the Golden Palm Award see extinct animals such as the Barbary Lion and the Tasmanian Tiger, and travel across the oceans on the old ocean liners such as the Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth. For starters, that was how they hooked me into funding much of the research. You see, a venture capitalist whose real name I won't use, but for the sake of telling this, I will call Reynolds, approached me as one of his first big investors. He had heard me mention my desire to time travel during my book tours. Heck, I had actually written an entire book series about it. That's why when he called me that day, I immediately shot straight up in my chair, paying close attention. Son, he said over the video screen on my desk. I've known for a long time now that you want to visit the past. I saw a smile break across his face. Well, what if I told you that we are the ones closest to actually achieving it? And if you're willing to invest a little time and money into my project, then I will allow you to become one of the first to actually travel to the past. 
I leaned forward in my chair. Well then, I would say that you now have my attention, Mr. Reynolds. From that moment on, I was hooked. I was brought to his laboratory where I was honestly shocked to find that he wasn't lying. They were closer than any of the hundreds of other government or private entities attempting to master it. Even to me, it was extremely complicated to understand, but I'll try and explain what he found in layman's terms. Many scientists right now in this century believe that if you traveled near a black hole, you would experience time dilation. This means one year near the edge of one would mean 80 years or so back on Earth, and it was already proven in 2190, when a space exploration which had left at the beginning of the 21st century came back looking exactly as they had almost a century prior. There is also a theory that black holes could work in reverse, operating as wormholes to both teleport and send people back in time. The issue is, it was found that you would need a particle accelerator almost a billion kilometers long, along with a stable wormhole. Both were almost a complete impossibility, until Reynolds' team came up with a discovery. They were not only able to use a particle accelerator much smaller, but they were also able to create an artificial wormhole, a man-made black hole in their lab. Naturally, many people, myself included, were concerned about this. I asked Reynolds if there were any safeguards to prevent the artificial black hole from rapidly growing on its own. He pointed upwards at the particle accelerator hanging from the ceiling. Victor, my boy, the particle accelerator is over 90 million sensors monitoring the hole, which, if they detect any kind of anomaly or rapid growth of its own volition beyond our parameters, it'll trigger an emergency shutdown which will zap the hole into non-existence. He slapped me on the back. You got nothing to be concerned about. I took him for his word at it. So dumb of myself to simply let it go at that. But I was blinded by how close we were to being able to conquer not only space but time as well. And in the year 2338, we finally attempted our first use of the artificial wormhole to open a portal to the past. Nothing too far back in time, we decided for a dry run to only go as far back as one single year. Everyone, scientists, other investors, even the janitorial staff crowded into the lab's viewing area, anxious to see if the work which had taken trillions of dollars and literal centuries would actually pay off. And it did. And to both our utter shock and amazement, the wormhole opened. Through the glass and through it, we could see something displayed on the other end of it. We saw the lab looking as it had this same time last year. That wasn't what made our jaws drop though. They dropped because we saw ourselves. I could see myself being led around the chamber by Reynolds and his team, detailing me on the advancements that we were now seeing the results of. I turned to Reynolds, finding him staring at the sight before us, with such a sense of pride and accomplishment. I felt my own grin begin to stretch across my face. It's actually possible, I thought ecstatically in my head. After so many centuries of hoping, it's actually possible. I saw Reynolds turn to me, the man's smile wider than my own if that was possible. Now do you believe me, Victor? He asked. For a moment, there was complete stillness in the viewing area. 
and then everybody burst into cheers and applause. We began shaking each other's hands and tugging each other, congratulating ourselves on achieving first what no one else had been able to do. Reynolds then told us to keep what we had seen under our hats. There was a scientific convention coming up in a few years where he wanted to reveal to the world our achievement. We were all too giddy and too busy basking in our own glory to stop to think about the implications of such a decision. Things such as safety protocols and proper procedures never crossed our minds. That mistake was not only the first major one, but the worst. I don't think what happened would have if we would have revealed our findings right there and then. We hit a few snags after that. You see, we could easily open up a wormhole to a few years back. Just as easily to a few decades back. Heck, even a century and a half back took a little more energy, but it was doable. So was being able to cross from one end of the wormhole in the present to the past and returning. We created a portable version of the particle accelerator and wormhole, which allowed us to move from the present to the past. Theoretically, you could use the portable pad to keep hopping back in time further and further. However, to return to the present, you needed the main unit. Nobody could find a way to engineer returning into the portable pad. The problem was, the further into the past that you wanted to go, the more energy that was used, and the larger the wormhole had to be to traverse such a long distance. The particle accelerator began to short out at times, causing us to limit our explorations until repairs could be made. One of the investors, Travis, approached me after a meeting with Reynolds in the spring of 2345 to voice his concerns. What worries me is that if he attempts to open a portal too far back in time at once, it may short out the safeguards, Vic, he said, looking around to make sure that he wasn't overheard. Reynolds had put most of us on edge as of late. If I was fixated on visiting the past, then he was utterly obsessed with it. He never let up on why, but the old photo of him and his mother, someone who had passed centuries ago, gave me a small clue to his motives. But whenever we voiced our concerns now, instead of the placating replies and reassurances, he would snap and almost seem like he was about to hit you. Honestly, I worry about it as well, but I mean, what can we do? I whispered back to him. Nobody besides us knows about how far along we are, and if we even try to mention anything to anybody outside of our group, God only knows what'll do. Especially where the reveal is less than two months away. Travis took a deep breath. I don't care. This is far too dangerous to keep hidden any longer. Somebody has to tell somebody outside. And with that, he turned and walked away. I watched him go unaware that behind me, a tiny remote security bug had been watching us before scampering away. I mulled over his words for about a month and a half unsure of what to do. Finally, with only a few days until the world reveal, I decided to return to the lab and speak to Reynolds. Unlike the others, the man was still somewhat friendly with me, and I felt still trusting enough to hear me out. I entered the lab using my personal keycard, noting that he wasn't in his office. I could tell that he had been there recently though. The coffee warmer on his desk still glowed a slightly red, 
and the cup beside it still had steam rising out of it. So I turned and headed for the observation area. As I drew closer, I heard voices. I couldn't tell whose they were yet, and I began to slow as I heard what sounded like angry, almost frantic pleadings from one. I froze, feeling a chill run on my spine. Did somebody break into the lab? I looked down, seeing a discarded metal pipe from a recent repair job, and I picked it up. Feeling every muscle in my body begin to tense up, I hit the button to open the pneumatic doors into the observation room, and I slid inside. Nobody was in here, but I can now tell the voices were coming from the main room itself. I crouch-walked to the glass and slowly peeked over it. What I saw made me nearly drop the pipe. Reynolds stood in the room, almost directly under the particle accelerator. Around him were about 10 or 12 of his personal security team. That wasn't the worst sight, though. Oh, oh God. Travis lay on an old medical gurney, the types that you used to see in an old mental hospital from the 20th century. His arms and legs were strapped tightly down, and he struggled to free himself from the restraints. The intercom into the room had been left on, and they could now hear what the voices were saying. Listen, Reynolds, Travis shouted. You don't know what you're doing. The wormhole is too unstable to demonstrate it before a crowd, especially where you want to open it up so far back in time at once. You don't even know what'll happen. For a moment, Reynolds stayed silent and then he began to chuckle. It wasn't a normal laugh, though. It sounded absolutely insane. I've seen quite literally millions of horror movies in my lifetime and heard so many insane and evil laughs. But hearing one for real, it made me shudder. He began to speak back to Travis quietly, too softly for me to hear. But whatever he had said, it made a look of complete horror fall over Travis's face. Oh my god, he moaned out. A feeling of dread began to course through me. Even though I didn't know what Reynolds had told him, I knew that it wasn't good. The man patted Travis on the shoulder and finally said something that I could make out. You'll be the first, Travis. For my own eyes to see before the big reveal. And nothing you, Victor, or anybody else can do was going to stop me. He began to walk towards the exit. Goodbye, Travis, he said and then exited the lab. I knew where he was going now. He was coming to the observation room. And God only knew what he would do if he found me here. There was only a single door out of the room, though. I knew that it was far too late to try and escape through it. The unhinged man was now on his way here and he would see me exiting from it. A rather large air duct with its cover off for repairs caught my eye, and I set down the pipe as I heard voices approach the door. One thing caught my eye before I climbed up into the vent. An object slouched in a canvas bag, and in the few seconds that I had left, I snatched it up, then climbed onto the table in the middle of the room and finally into the vent. I made it just in time as I heard the pneumatic doors open less than a second later, and I saw through the opening Reynolds and his goons step in and up to the glass. A moment later, the lights in the lab began to flicker and weaken. Horror as palpable as I ever felt surged through me. He's turning on the particle accelerator to open the wormhole. Through the glass, I saw Travis struggle in vain to break free. Below me, I heard Reynolds let out a low, evil chuckle. 
and then he turned to the man to his left. Do it, he said flatly. In response, the man slammed his meaty fist into a red button on the side of the wall, and I had to slap both of my hands over my mouth to keep from screaming. Have you ever heard about something called spaghettification? It's what scientists, both now in this time and in the future, call what happens when a black hole swallows an object in its path, whether it be a star, a planet, or in this case, a person. The wormhole opened, and as it did, Travis began to scream. It was the most pained, agonizing scream that I've heard a human being make. As it did, I saw both him and the gurney begin to get pulled toward the opening black hole. That wasn't the most horrible part, though. As he approached it, both he and the gurney seemed to begin to stretch out, and at the same time, compress. As if he was Laffy Taffy being stretched and pulled on a machine. His scream began to sound off, tinny. It rose as several octaves. They say that if a human being was sucked into a black hole, the process of spaghettification would be one of the most horrific and painful ways to die. I can confidently say that they were understating that hypothesis. It was all over in a span of about 20 seconds for us, but I knew for Travis what had been seconds for us had been an eternity of dying for him due to time dilation. The accelerator was turned off and the black hole wavered for a moment before vanishing. When it was gone, Reynolds turned to his men. Ready the plans and items needed for the world reveal. I want everything to be in place for when it's time, he said. One guard nodded. Yes sir, we'll have it all ready. The men that I had once considered my partner and friend began to walk towards the door. When the guard called after him, and if Victor should come poking his nose around here while you're gone, he asked. I felt a fresh surge of fear and horror splash through me as the question was answered. Then end him the same way we did Travis. I will not have him interfering in this. Actually, he held up a finger. Don't do that. Go out after this and find him. Put him in my personal jet and put him in the farthest distance away. He deserves what's coming almost more than anyone else, and I want him to be one of the last to go. And with that, he turned and strode out of the lab. I couldn't help but shake uncontrollably in the cramped metal space at his words, as the guards gathered some papers and equipment, and then left the lab. It took me a long time to climb down from that vent and sneak onto the lab. I was terrified that I would be caught at any moment, but I managed to make it out unseen. I didn't go back to my home, any of my homes across the world actually. I knew that there would be men at all of them just waiting for me. Instead, I did something that I hadn't in centuries, and I returned to my poor and tumble roots. I first withdrew all the money and gold that I could from my bank accounts knowing that I would need it, and ended up taking refuge in an extremely run-down motel in the city, one which advertised itself as an authentic early 21st century motel experience. It was for technophobes, people who were afraid or hated technology to stay when needing to go out from their homes. While there, I frantically tried contacting anybody that I could to warn them, especially after discovering a typed, printed-out speech, 
something that I hadn't seen in centuries, stuffed into a pocket of the bag. Most of it related to the reveal speech, but the last part was what caused me to try calling anybody in power in such a panic. Even now, the words of what turned into a twisted manifesto still fill me with such horror I can't describe. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I must end this presentation with a bit of an admission. This device can indeed open a wormhole through time. It can allow humanity to traverse time and space, allow us to move freely to the past and future at will. But that was only a side effect. It was not what I secretly designed this machine for in the first place. You see, humanity to me as it is now is abhorrent. It's disgusting and aberration. It has been ever since I was a child and had my mother and father educate me on how evil the species we were. To the environment, to each other, and to the universe as a whole. As they became older and I grew, they passed those views onto me. At first, I didn't understand why they and those like them wanted and not just humans, but all sapient, sentient life to cease to exist. But as these centuries had gone on, I had come to understand their views. Humans were never meant to live this long. Many of us, both here in the audience and watching at home, were never meant to live as long as we have. We all should have done the right thing and died a long time ago. It's disgusting to let ourselves live on. Every year I kept living was one that I hated. But I know I'll never get the majority of others to agree with my views. Our views. And so in secret, I have worked with them for centuries on a final plan. To make the choice for you. For all of us. None of you deserve to keep living beyond today. None of us either. All sapient, sentient life in the universe needs to do the right thing and cease to exist. And none of you deserves to be able to travel through time. This is the moment for humanity for everything to end, and it's too late to escape. May the universe be bettered by the erasure of all life. Goodbye. And now I should probably explain why I'm telling you all of this how I managed to travel back here, and why I'm revealing all of these things. It's because I wasn't able to stop Reynolds. I tried desperately for days to get through to anybody in the government to warn them. I left message after message. But just like the government now, it's such a mess in the future that either nobody got my messages or they were ignored as a hoax. At least, not until it was far too late to stop. Because on August 17th, 2345, at exactly 2.30 in the afternoon, Reynolds walked on stage in front of millions of people in the audience in the remodeled Los Angeles Convention Center, and with billions more watching all over the world. He revealed his machine, which he had moved to the center from the lab, and did exactly as the prepared speech had gone. The world aghast as it thought it had opened up a new age in humanity's existence, able to not only reach the stars but also the future and past. I watched it on the ancient, barely functioning smart TV in my motel room as I frantically prepared. I saw the moment that he launched into his manifesto speech. I saw the realization begin to spread over the crowd, the looks of excitement and glee melting into existential dread and horror. 
A few tried to rush him to stop him, but his guards, ones that I realized were also a part of his group, shot them. It didn't matter whether they were men or women. They were shot like rabid animals with no remorse. And then Reynolds pulled the lever. The screens didn't stay up for long. Nor did I wait around to watch much, but the little that I did will stay burned into my memory for the rest of my existence. The black hole opened, growing rapidly far more so than I ever saw it do before. It was a runaway black hole, one which might never stop growing. I saw the start of millions of people begin the process of a spaghettification. The screams of pain and agony of millions of lives ending at once. To them, drawn out for a literal eternity of horrific stretching and peeling into oblivion, must be what the deepest pits of this world are filled with sound like. Before the end of the day, Earth was gone, sucked into the ever-expanding black hole. Billions of lives were ended in the most horrific, painful way imaginable, and with no way to even attempt to escape, as all of Earth was inside the event horizon. And for all I know, it kept growing. For all I know, it ate the entire galaxy, and it's on its way to swallow the entire universe, ending every sapient, sentient thing in existence. But I don't know. I never saw it. You see, the thing that I grabbed in that canvas bag that day, which sat along with the copy of Reynolds' speech, the thing that I saw which made me snatch it up in the first place, was the portable pad. I guess the maniac never thought again about it, seeing as how he never planned for it to be properly used. And as I witnessed the final few moments of his speech, I frantically typed in a random date, a century before into the wrist-mounted destination selector. I just barely managed to send myself back in time before Los Angeles was obliterated. It's taken me a while to make it all the way back here to 2023. I didn't dare jump more than a few decades back at a time after that first large jump. I was in untested waters and I didn't want to accidentally destabilize the wormhole and end up doing to myself what had been done to everybody else. And I found jumping back can physically drain you. It doesn't cause any adverse effects such as cancer or tumors to grow, thank God, but it does tire you out causing you to sleep for two or three days at a time. And I should explain why I'm here in the first place. First, I have to say, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry that I was so blind, so easily able to be used for my money to have such an evil plan enacted. I am so sorry that whether or not I meant for it to happen, I was a part of what happened. I'm so sorry that I was allowed in my pursuit of a centuries-long dream to become a pawn, but I have a plan to try and prevent that horrific, evil act, one which makes all prior human atrocities look like Tonka toys in comparison from happening. It will require a sacrifice from me, however. I do believe it will cost me a piece of myself, a piece of my soul. You see, I won't be able to strike and try to kill Reynolds in his adulthood, due to the wealth and power that he gained from his parents. I already had thought of that when I landed back in the mid-23rd century, which means like all those people here online spoke about wanting to do with some other horrible evil men, dictators if they got their hands on time travel. I must. 
No, I cannot bring myself to say it outright. Even for the most evil man in existence, I cannot bring myself to outright say what I feel I must do, and the way that I must do it. And I know that it will be one of the hardest things to live with once I've done it, but it must be done. That is why before I do this, I'm making one final jump back from here, to give myself a final chance of happiness and peace for a few decades, almost a century. I'm going to give myself one final gift. I'm going to send myself back to the early 1900s. I'm currently collecting vintage cash and more gold things than I couldn't get in my time anymore to start a new life back then. I'm going to see the Barbary Lion and Tasmanian Tiger and all of the other long extinct animals. I'm going to go to the Cannes Film Festival in 1956 and shake the hand of Jacques Cousteau, see his amazing film win that award. I'm going to take many oceanic crossing trips on the ocean liners, and I'm going to do much more since the life extension and age reversal therapies will last for another 480 years before wearing off. And all the while, I'll be preparing myself mentally, emotionally, and physically for the horrific act which I must do to help keep humanity and to keep everything from ending. So all of you, along with your children, grandchildren, and so on, can live long, happy lives for as long as you want. I already wake up screaming almost every night from the horror that I saw that last day in the 24th century. I know that I likely will scream worse after I do this, but it must be done. I'm only staying here another few weeks just to take in a final look at a time that I had almost forgotten about. So please, wish me luck. As morbid as that might be. I do need to warn you of one thing though, one thing which both worries and scares me far more than any fictional monster or slasher ever could. There is one element of time travel which has been hypothesized but never proven. One that, even after traveling through time, I don't know about. The theory of the multiverse. If someone were to travel back in time and alter the course of history in any large way, it is theorized that instead of the timeline they're unchanging with it, a new, branching timeline would emerge, one where the change occurs, while the other one continues on exactly as it originally did. The person who made the change would never know that they were on the new, branching timeline. They couldn't. I pray to God, one which I still believe in, but so many in my time stopped believing in long ago, that the multiverse theory is wrong. That when I do this, I'll change this universe's fate this timeline. But, if it's right, I'm so, so sorry for what is to come. There's nothing worse than waking up in a cold sweat, ruining a perfectly good night of sleep. If it's night terrors, well, I can't help you there. But if you're just a naturally hot sleeper, then listen up. Ghost Bed is here for you. As the makers of the coolest beds in the world, Ghostbed is your go-to for cooling mattresses, cooling pillows, and even cooling bedding. From their signature ghost ice fabric to patented technology that adjusts with your body temperature, every Ghostbed mattress is designed with cooling in mind. So whether you want a plusher mattress that cushions your shoulders and hips, or a firmer option with exceptional support, Ghostbed will keep you cool and comfortable all night long. For a limited time, Griefscast listeners can get 30% off mattresses, plus get two luxury pillows and other freebies. 
Just visit ghostbed.com slash creepscast. Use promo code Mr. Creeps at checkout. That's ghostbed.com slash creepscast with promo code Mr. Creeps. I worked the night shift at my local gas station. I discovered its dark secret. Written by Horror Writer 1717. Every morning it's the same thing. People lining up at the pumps that seem to always be full. I've seen fights erupt when somebody cuts line at the pump. And dear God, don't get in the way of them ordering their gallon-sized bucket of coffee to go. With their pseudo-egg wrapped in dough and deep-fried, part of this nutritious breakfast. Every morning it looks like an army of ants on caffeine, running around, grabbing whatever food-type substances and drinks they can, then taking their usual position of impatiently waiting in line. I love the different poses. The watch watcher. They must glance at their watch every two seconds to show you how much they're being inconvenienced. They're usually the ones getting into a Mercedes or a BMW when they leave. I don't know why they don't get their breakfast catered. I'm sure they can afford it. The foot tapper. Usually they have something stuck in their ear and can't hear their order being called. The heavy sire. Exhales loudly every third time the watch watcher checks the time. And when the foot tapper has to be told to move up in line. As if anybody could hear him over the music that's blaring so loud over the speakers. Making it so easy for everyone. Did I happen to mention that I work here? Sometimes I wonder why after the things I've seen, not just the idiots but other things, much darker things, but we'll get to that. Every morning I have to deal with these idiots. Is it still called road rage if you feel it in a gas station? As much as I hate them, customers are actually the easiest part of my job. I mean, who wouldn't want to go out in the middle of the night when the temperature is below zero and the wind is howling to change the bags and the trash cans because it's the appointed time? And to a point of the time, you ask, why the manual, of course? The corporate bean counters have done studies and run focus groups or some nonsense to decide the perfect time of day, or in this case, night, to empty the trash. It's all in the manual. The manual is your friend. The manual is your god. The manual must be obeyed at all costs. That's what the manual says. So, if it's cleaning the toilets, emptying the trash, or washing out the coffee makers, the manual tells us exactly when and how to do it. That's a load off my mind. I don't even have to worry about not knowing how to clean a toilet. The manual tells me. What it doesn't tell me is what happens when the power goes out only at our station every night at exactly 2.59am and comes back on at 3.01. I've seen this so many times. I watch the McDonald's beside us and their lights never go out. What's even stranger is these security cameras never seem to pick it up. I've reviewed the recordings. No loss of power ever shows. What does happen is somehow the timestamp on the video suddenly shoots from 2.59 to 3.01, like those two minutes never existed. The corporate techies call it a glitch and they tell me to ignore it. The rest of us don't mention it. 
Not if we know what's good for us. But I know why it happens. I don't tell anyone for fear of being sent to. Is it corporate who keeps us shaking in terror at the potential of letting outsiders know what happens during those two missing minutes every night? Yes and no. It's something that much closer, much darker. Something that could. I guess the best way to describe it would be to tell the story of Kenny. Now I know when I first heard his name, I did the famous line from South Park. Oh no, they killed Kenny. It used to make me chuckle. I don't do that anymore. He started working here around five months ago. And wow, has it really been that long? Anyway, he was just another goofy teenager starting his first job after high school. Not that I was an elder scholar or anything. I only started here a year before Kenny did. He was fun to work with and we instantly became buddies. We loved to goof off during the night shift. Most nights it was just us working together. The place was usually dead from midnight until 5. We would rush around to get all of our chores done so we had some free time. More than once we got into chicken nugget battles which would have us cleaning up right before the morning rush help came on. We found it exactly where the cameras could and couldn't see and we hid from them while we had our battles. We became so good at it that the night security guys would call and ask where we were at. Yep, the corporate bean counters monitored us night and day. Big Brother was always watching. More than once, we discussed the option of tearing down the cameras and visiting corporate headquarters to shove them, while in some very interesting and anatomically uncomfortable areas of management's collective persons. But as for what happened to Kenny, we were having one of our nugget battles when Kenny gave a shout. I went over to see what was wrong and found him holding his cheek. He said something sharp at him. I told him that I was just throwing nuggets when he looked down and saw the offending object. He picked up a nugget that was broken in half, but there was something sticking out of it. We looked and there was what looked like a woman's diamond engagement ring. We debated back and forth how it could have gotten lodged in there when Kenny pulled it out and found the meat perfectly formed around it. I don't think it got stuck in there, Kenny said. I think it was processed this way. That would mean, I said, that someone was accidentally processed in the meat machine. Are we sure that it was an accident? Even as the words came out of my mouth, I knew how ludicrous they sounded. That kind of thing only happened in the movies, didn't it? Kenny's eyes locked on mine and I could tell that he was thinking the same thing. I looked up and saw that we were in the camera's view. Stick that thing in your pocket, quick, I said. Kenny obeyed and we went about cleaning up as usual, but I could tell that it was bothering him. Now forget about that thing, man, I told him. Just some weird coincidence. How many chicken nuggets have you eaten from this place? He said with a haunted look in his eye. I thought for a moment, knowing the answer was much higher than I had wanted it to be. In fact, thinking about the ring and the potential source for the meat to the nuggets, it made me feel ill. It doesn't matter, I won't be eating anymore. What about that poor woman and her family? What about her? I said, my eyes nervously darting toward the nearest camera. 
Doesn't she deserve more than that? What do you want me to do? Hunt down her family and tell them where we found the ring. Kenny's eyes lit up. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Count me out of that, man, I said, hoping that it would be enough to give him second thoughts about it. He shrugged and went about his cleaning duties, but from that moment on, he had changed. Every time that he was on break, he would be looking things up on his phone. More than once, I glanced over and he was looking at missing person sites and making notes on one that were in the area. The longer he investigated this, the less that he was interested in anything else. I swear it was like he was slowly turning into a zombie. All he did was stare at his phone and make notes. One day I came into the break room and he was just sitting there motionless. His eyes were open but focused on some point off in the distance. It was the creepiest thing that I had ever seen. You okay, Kenny? I said. He slowly turned toward me like some possessed doll. I'm fine. Um, okay. I know who she is. Who who is? The woman whose ring we found. Okay, who is she? She worked at the distribution center. You mean the company's distribution center where we get all of our products from? He nodded slowly. How did you find that out? I asked a lot of questions. Who did you ask? He stared at me with an intensity in his eyes that I had never seen before. People. What people? He turned slowly and looked up at one of the cameras. It's not important. He said, looking away from the cameras and resuming his unfocused stare. You okay, man? Yeah, I'm fine. He said in a monotone voice. It's just... I waited for a long moment for him to finish his sentence, but he just sat there like someone had hit his pause button. Just what? I said. He jumped like I had startled him awake. What? What do you mean, what? I said. You were talking and just stopped. I did? Yep. What was I saying? Well, that's what I was trying to find out. What? Yep. Yep. Now what? What? I shook my head in frustration. Never mind. I said walking away, leaving him sitting there staring at his face. I couldn't figure if he was messing with me or if something had happened. Had he really been tracking down where that ring came from? Had he really run across some people who had scared him so bad that they turned him into the zombie? I decided that it was time for some answers. After our shift was over, I followed him home. Only he didn't go home. He drove to the distribution center and parked on a secluded spot outside the fence where his car wouldn't be seen. I waited for him to get out of sight before I parked my car and followed him. He stalked through the woods outside the fence for a while until he came to a section that came apart when he pulled on it. He slipped inside and I followed suit after he was out of sight. I came around the corner of a massive building and found him sitting at a picnic bench, smoking a cigarette. I stayed back and watched. Shocked that I had never seen him smoke before. I wondered why he would break in here just to smoke a cigarette. Well, the answer came quickly. The door of the warehouse opened and three people stepped out. I held my breath, thinking that he had been caught, but he was calm and continued to sit at the bench. 
In fact, the people who had come out began talking to him. He even offered one of them a cigarette. It was then that I realized that they were in the same outfit that he was wearing. The company didn't have different uniforms for those who worked at the stations or those who worked at the distribution center. They chatted for a few minutes and then they all got up and went back inside. Kenny included. It was brilliant. He slipped right inside and no fuss and no mas. I figured, what the heck? It worked for Kenny as I walked up and sat at the same picnic table. I didn't know how long it would be until the next break so I tried a different approach. I knocked on the door. For a few minutes, no one answered. Each time I knocked, I became more anxious that a security guard would show up and arrest me for trespassing. Finally, after knocking, the door opened. I stepped back when I saw a security guard standing there. I hesitated. Well, the large man said in a deep voice, Well, what? was all that I could think to answer back. Well, are you going to come in or not? It took my brain a moment to comprehend what he had said. Sorry, yes, I said diving through the door. He shut it behind me with a loud bang. It sounded like my doom. I knew that he was onto me. He was just getting me inside so that he could contain me and I couldn't get away. I stood there, vapor locked, unable to move for fear of what the guard would do. He stared at me, his eyes boring into mine as though sucking every secret out of me. What do you think you're doing? He said. I, I don't know what you mean. Yes, you do. He said, folding his arms in front of his massive chest. No, I promise I don't know anything. I said, hoping my knees wouldn't start knocking. All right, enough of this, he said. I started to shake. I had never been to prison. In fact, I had never gotten in serious trouble in my life. And now here I was, breaking and entering. Even though I didn't really break, I just knocked and entered. I wondered if the judge would take that into account. You've had your break, now get back to work, he said. I stared at him, dumbfounded. Excuse me? You heard me, the company doesn't pay you to stand around. Get back to work. Yes, sir, I said feeling the weight of a prison sentence lift from my shoulders. I took a step and then stopped. Which way is it to where they process the chicken nuggets? The guard rolled his eyes. Freaking newbies, he muttered. Follow the red line. He pointed at the floor where several different colored lines ran down the middle of the hallway and disappeared into the distance. Thanks, I said, quickly following the red line away from him. It led down a long hallway and right up to a large set of double doors that read, processing. I looked left and right, but there was no sign of Kenny. I stepped in through the double doors to a huge room full of conveyor belts. I looked around, but it was impossible to tell anybody apart when they were wearing hairnets and face masks. I had made it two steps until I heard, What do you think you're doing? A woman dressed in a white coat accosted me. You know you're not supposed to be on the floor without your hairnet and mask on. She shoved a hairnet on my head and then hooked a mask around my ears. Now where's your station? Um, I said, 
my eyes darting around as she watched me impatiently. How long have you worked here? She said, seeing my indecision. First day, I lied. She sighed heavily. You're not even supposed to be on the floor yet. You have videos to watch. I shrugged. Wait here, she said. I'll go find somebody to take you upstairs and start your videos. I waited long enough for her to leave the room and then I roamed around trying to find Kenny. I walked past line after line of people sorting through chunks of meat, tossing aside parts that weren't usable, or at least weren't usable for the main product. The bad parts were tossed into plastic bins. As I walked by, I saw some interesting things in the bins. There were little pieces of shiny objects, dark blobs that I couldn't identify, rocks, a loose change, and I swear that I saw a finger. As I passed, the people on the line took a second away from their work to shoot me some nasty glances. I guess having someone stare over their shoulder who wasn't a supervisor was taboo. As I walked by, somebody grabbed me and pulled me over to the line beside me. What the heck are you doing here? Kenny hissed. Looking for you, I said. Okay, you found me, now get out of here. He said, going back to sorting. Not until you tell me what's going on. I said standing beside him and sorting pieces of meat. If I promise to tell you everything later, will you leave? I hesitated. My curiosity had been piqued. What is going on here? I said tossing a piece of rotten-looking meat into a bin. He sighed. Later. We can't talk about it now. I grimaced, knowing that he wouldn't let me in on the secret. I glared at him when suddenly I saw the supervisor coming back and looking for me. Promise me we'll talk about this tonight at work, I said. I promise. I turned around and walked away from him. She saw me and made a beeline for me. What were you doing in the line when you haven't been properly trained? Deciding. Deciding what? That this job isn't for me. I said, handing her my hairnet and mask. I quit. She stared at me, jaw hanging open as I stormed off. I glanced back to see her narrowing her eyes in Kenny's direction. I made my way back out to the hallway and followed the red line back to where I had come into the building. I reached the exit when I heard a familiar deep voice. Decided it's not for you, eh? I turned to see the security guard who had let me in on the way in. That job's not for anyone, I said. Yeah, it's no tiptoe through the tulips. What? It's an old saying, never mind. Why are you going out this way? I suddenly remembered that I was on the wrong side of the building. I figured I would walk around to get some fresh air. He narrowed his eyes at me. I went for broke and I bolted for the door. I could hear him running behind me. Stop. He yelled much closer than I liked. I didn't obey. Instead, I hit the crash bar so hard that I nearly knocked myself backward. The door flung open and smashed against the outside wall. I hit the open air and was around the corner before I knew it. I flew through the brush up to the fence and panicked when I couldn't find the open section right away. He was still in pursuit, but further behind. He must have lost sight of me for a minute. 
I ran along the fence, pushing on it as I went and growing more desperate with every moment. If I was stuck inside the fence, it would lead me right to the main entrance and I would be caught. I was sweating from running but also from the thought of going to jail when a section of the fence gave way when I pushed it. I breathed a quick sigh of relief as I dove through the open fence to freedom. I ran to my car not even thinking about the brush that had torn in my uniform and skin. I dove into the car and took off home. Only once I was moving did I look back and see Kenny's car sitting there partially hidden. I wondered why he was being so secretive. I wondered if I had compromised him by leading them so close to his car. As I drove, my breathing returned to normal, followed by an adrenaline crash. I barely made it home and I fell into bed. When I woke, it was dark. I jumped up in a panic, not sure where I was until I banked my foot off my nightstand and screamed in pain. Once I could breathe again, I leaned over and turned on the light. It bathed the room in an eerie glow that made me think somebody was there. I looked at the clock and realized that I was late for work. I didn't have time to change, shower, or anything. I just ran out of the door and hopped into my car. The drive to work was a blur. I hoped that I wouldn't get pulled over. When I got there a half hour late, I got an earful from my supervisor about not calling in to tell them that I would be late. I apologized and went about my nightly routine. This isn't the military, he said as he headed out. But if you show up looking like that again, I'll have to write you up. I wasn't sure what he meant until I went to the bathroom and I saw myself. My uniform, it looked like it had been through a shredder. There were tears all over my shirt and pants. My narrow escape through the brush had not been kind. I cringed at the thought of dealing with customers looking like I had spent the night fighting off wild badgers. But in the end, there was nothing that I could do. I would have to get a new uniform to replace this one and use one of my backups. I came out of the bathroom and nearly ran over Kenny. You ready to spill your guts yet? What are you talking about? He said with a blank stare. That's not funny, I said. You promised that you would talk to me tonight. I am talking to you. You're a real comedian and I'll spill it. Spill what? I'm not laughing, Kenny. Talk to me. He looked at me and his eyes glazed over. It scared me. You okay, man? I said. I'm fine. Okay, what do you remember about this warning? His eyes went a deeper glaze as he fell into a thousand-yard stare. He didn't say anything for a long moment, and then it was like he woke up from a nap and looked at me. I went home and I went to bed. I took a step back from him. No, man, you didn't. I didn't. You went to the distribution center. Why would I do that? I tried my best to find any sign that he was joking, but I couldn't and I knew him well enough to tell when he was serious. He was dead serious and believed every word that he was saying. You told me that you had found something out, I said. What? I don't know, you said you would tell me tonight. His eyes lit up with curiosity. Did I tell you? No, 
I said slowly. I was waiting for you to tell me. Huh, I wonder what it was, he said, his eyes becoming unfocused. Okay, man, you're scaring me. Just then, there came a beep telling me that somebody had ordered food. I gotta get that, I said, staring at him as he stood there like a robot trying to figure out an equation. I ran to the kitchen and started preparing the order. When it was nearly done, I saw Kenny come to the register and ring up the customer. At number 38, I called out, setting the bag of food on the counter. I glanced up and froze when I saw who came for the bag. It was the security guard from the distribution center. So, this is where you really work, he said grabbing the bag. He shot me a sinister smile as he walked out. My fear melted, replaced with anger. I ran out the door after him. Hey, I yelled as he reached for his car door. Yeah? I approached slowly. What did you do to my friend? Who? The cashier. I said pointing inside to Kenny standing there behind the counter looking like a statue. The security guard took a long look at him and then got a scared look in his eye. I have to go. He said, ripping his door open and diving inside. What did you do to him? I said, grabbing his car door and holding it open. Get away from me, he said. Tell me first. His eyes darted all around. I can't talk to you. He said barely, opening his lips and staring straight ahead. Why not? His eyes darted up to one of the many security cameras and then back to staring straight ahead. He ripped the door out of my hand, closed it, and roared out of the parking lot. I watched him go, more confused now than ever. I slowly looked around and for the first time realized just how many cameras were aimed at the parking lot. I went back inside and did my job for the rest of the night, trying not to let my eyes drift up to any of the cameras. I kept my eye on Kenny too, watching for any stray glances out of character. Anything that would tell me that he was joking. I didn't see one all night. The longer he went, the more scared I became. When our shift was over, I offered to drive him home, but he said that he would be fine and drove off looking like a robot zombie. I wondered if he would make it. I tried to sleep that day, but I couldn't get my mind to shut down. It hadn't been two weeks since Kenny had found that ring and started his quest for the truth. He got out of bed having slept maybe an hour and dragged myself to the bathroom when there was a knock at my door. I answered it and there stood the security guard. Oh, what are you doing here? I said through blurry eyes. Can I come in? I don't know. Are you going to arrest me for trespassing? Should I? I started to close the door. No, I'm going to tell you what happened to your friend. I stopped and reopened the door. He stepped inside, giving the place a quick once over. Okay, so what happened? He asked too many questions. What do you mean? He sighed. I've worked at that place for a while now, and one of the things I've learned is that you don't ask questions. I don't get it. He showed up about a week or so ago. He just blended in and started working on the line. Next thing I know, I'm hearing workers talk about somebody causing trouble. 
I narrowed it down to your friend and tried to talk some sense into him, but he wasn't having it. The day that you pulled your escape act, they pulled him in and had a discussion with him. And that's what made him go all zombie on me. You don't get it, the guard said. They drugged him. What? They have this drug that they use that slowly eats away at your brain until there's nothing left. Wait, they're killing him. That's the way it works. But why? He looked around the room as if searching for something specific. Do you have an Alexa or any other stuff like that? No, just my phone. And Give it to me. I hesitantly handed him my phone and he proceeded to remove the battery. If they find out that I'm telling you this, I'll be next. Telling me what? The chickens. Uh, what about them? They aren't chickens. What are you talking about? They have a system. They drive unmarked white vans out into the streets, round up homeless people, then take them to the distribution center. Once they have them there, they give them a much more powerful dose of the drug that your friend is on. It kills their brain within hours, and then they process what's left. I stared at him for a long time. So you're saying that the chicken nuggets, they aren't chicken. I ran to the bathroom and vomited in the toilet. When I came back out, he hadn't moved. That can't be real, I said. That's like horror movie stuff. You might be surprised how much stuff you see in movies that's secretly real. So you're saying my friend was poisoned, he nodded. Because he asked too many questions, he nodded again. Then why is he still alive? I don't know, maybe as a warning to you. Me? You were there too, that's how they work. They can get to you anywhere. They can slip it into your food or drink. They can mail you a letter with the drug on it. They can slip it on your car's door handle. It isn't just street people that grab. Protesters, whistleblowers, anybody who threatens their business. Do you know how many people disappear in this city every day? No. Well, let's just say they process a whole lot of chicken. What about all those workers? Wouldn't they know that it wasn't chicken? They give them a lower dose and just enough to keep them from asking questions. I looked around the room. Okay, where's the hidden camera? His eyes darted around. What camera? The one for the reality show or whatever you and Kenny are in on to prank me. You don't believe me. I don't believe you. He hung his head. I stuck my neck out to come warn you. While I appreciate the warning, I said sarcastically. He turned and walked to the door. Just keep an eye out for your friend. He said opening the door and watch for the white vans. He closed it behind him. It was nearly time to go to work. I shook off the thought that was clinging to the back of my brain. What if he was right? I showered and dressed and made it to work on time. The shift was uneventful except for my continual attempts to snap Kenny out of it. He didn't respond. It was just before 3am when I saw a white van pull up. No one got out of it and I couldn't see inside because it had tinted windows. I shrugged it off and went back to work, mopping the kitchen floor. The guard's words came to me as I was doing my chores. 
I looked back out at the white van, but it was gone. I shrugged and went back to cleaning. A few minutes later, I came out of the back room because someone was yelling, Isn't anybody working around here? An angry man raged at the counter. Sorry, I said, the cashier must be in the bathroom. I took care of him and then went on a mission to find Kenny. In his condition, he could have wandered off somewhere or gotten stuck in a closet. Twenty minutes later, I was frantic. I hadn't seen hide nor hair of Kenny. I was even tempted to check on the roof, but the access ladder was still locked. It was starting to get busy and I didn't have time to search for him anymore. Between cooking and running the register, I was falling behind by the second. I had a lot of irate customers by the time that day shift came in and bailed me out. I was so far behind that I stayed for an extra hour just to help them catch up. After my shift was over, I went to see the supervisor. I'm worried about Kenny, I said. It's not like him to just disappear like that. Well, maybe he got sick and went home without telling you. Maybe, but why is his car still here then? He looked at the security monitors and sure enough, Kenny's car was still sitting in the employee parking. That is weird. I'll tell you what, if he calls in, I'll give you a call. Fair enough, I said yawning. I drove home and fell into a deep sleep. When I woke, I felt more refreshed than I had in days. I went into work that night expecting to find Kenny there laughing at me for falling for such an awesome prank. He wasn't there. Instead, I had somebody from day shift who had volunteered to work overtime. For three days, Kenny didn't show up. On the fourth day, I got a surprise. In the morning, I was making food orders when I called an order number and the guard walked up to take his food. Hey, any sign of Kenny? I said. Sorry, do I know you? He said. Okay, very funny, seriously. I said, leaning closer. Do you think they did something to him? Who did what to who? I looked into his eyes and let go of his bag of food. He had the same vacant stare that Kenny did just before he had disappeared. You have a good day now, he said with a smile before walking out. I suddenly felt surrounded and alone at the same time. I glanced up one of the cameras as its mechanical eye stared back at me. I stopped questioning what had happened to Kenny. Deep down, I knew. They towed his car out of the lot. I don't know where it went to. Maybe there's a corporate car crusher for the vehicles of their victims. The worst part is that they continue to get away with it. I wish there was some way that I could prove what I know, but I can't. Without going into the distribution center and getting evidence, I've got nothing. I keep coming to work for some reason. I've started looking for another job. I've written this all down in hopes that someday somebody might be able to use it. That they would read this and look in the right place to discover this horrible truth. I've been feeling more tired lately. Maybe it's just knowing about this horrible thing that's happened and having no way to stop it. I wanted to write more of what I remembered in my journal. But my thoughts, they seem to slip away so easily. It's been a few days since I've written anything, I, I think. Or has it been a few weeks? I keep getting thirstier for soda. I'm glad the company lets us have free soda when we work.
I keep looking at the cameras for some reason, but I can't remember why. I read the words on the page, but don't remember writing them. I see a white van pull up. Oh, it must be a customer. It's nearly three in the morning. I hope they come in before the power surge. Tired of the same old meals week after week? Well, say hello to HelloFresh then. The meal kit delivery service that will revolutionize the way that you eat. With HelloFresh, you'll get access to a constantly rotating menu of chef-curated seasonal recipes that are guaranteed to please even the pickiest of eaters. From classic comfort foods to international cuisine, there's something for every taste and craving. Ingredients are always fresh and pre-portioned, so you can spend less time shopping and more time cooking and enjoying your meals. And with easy-to-follow recipe cards and step-by-step -step instructions, even novice cooks can feel confident in the kitchen. I'm not the best cook either, but recently, my go-to has been the firecracker meatballs, and I absolutely love them. They don't take very long to make, and at the end of the day, I feel better about myself for cooking something up in the kitchen than ordering takeout. To get started today, go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreeps50 and use code MrCreeps50 for 50% off. Plus, your first box ships for free. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreeps50. Use code MrCreeps50 for 50% off. Plus, your first box ships for free. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Something infested the water supply. Now martial law is declared on our town. Written by CIA Herb. A man ran down the street, crying, screaming, and zigzagging wildly and looking over his shoulder as he ran. Please, oh God, help me, he said as he ran. And then an inhumanly long arm appeared out of nowhere, grabbing him by the throat and pulling him into an alleyway. The arm was emaciated and sickly looking. Oh my God, my wife said to my right, peering out of the window. Did you see that? That arm had to have been ten feet long. I quickly shut the curtains. Get Sarah, I said, referring to our only child, and go to the basement and grab as many canned foods and bottles of water as you can. I ran upstairs to get my shotgun and grabbing a couple of boxes of slugs and buckshot and throwing them in a canvas bag. Police and ambulance sirens flew by outside but I paid them no mind. They wouldn't be able to help much, if at all. We had tried calling a few minutes earlier, but the line had been busy. It was the first time that I had ever heard of 911 giving a busy signal. As we all settled in the basement, a couple of boxes of food and water next to us on the table, I found an old radio that I kept down here in storage. It was covered in dust, but I blew on it sending a gray cloud of it into the air. My wife started coughing. I sheepishly apologized, plugging the radio in and turning it on. Civil broadcast from the United States government. A robotic voice stated, As of 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 
Martial law is being declared for your local area. All emergency services are suspended until further notice. Please stay in your homes and await further instructions. Help is on the way. This is not a test. And then a loud beeping sound issued from the radio, and the message started to repeat. I tried changing the station, but it was coming through on every one. Someone started slamming on the door upstairs, and I heard the kitchen window directly above us being smashed. Be quiet, I whispered to my wife and daughter. They trembled, pale statues in the darkness of the basement. I heard heavy footsteps above us and the sound of someone dragging something. From further down the street, I heard screaming and wood being smashed, as if someone were kicking in a door. It sounded like a car had driven into the house next door. I heard the shattering glass and rending metal of the car hitting a structure, and then a piercing woman's shriek. The smell of smoke began to permeate the night air. I also heard what sounded like children screaming in our front yard, and a woman who was probably their mother trying to yell instructions at them. Run, she said. Get away from... But then her voice was cut off with a deep gurgling, choking sound. The voices of her children went soon after. I had a small window in the basement and I could see thick gray clouds of smoke outside. It obscured my view of what was going on further down the street. Should we go help them? My wife said. She grabbed my hand reflexively. Her hand felt cold and I could feel their pulse through her skin. I shook my head. Beth, we have our own child to worry about, I said. The radio says that martial law is declared, which means that we have to wait for the military to arrive. I listened for movement upstairs, but nothing else was happening that I could hear. I turned back on the radio. The robotic voice had stopped its monotonous repetition, and now a deep man's voice was speaking. He sounded calm and unhurried. I caught the tail end of what he was saying. The situation is under control, he said. I repeat, the U.S. military has the situation under control. What we ask from you, citizens of our great country, is this. Do not drink the water. Do not shower in the water. Do not cook with the water. Don't even wash your hands with the water. Only drink previously bottled water or other drinks. We believe this outbreak is the result of a localized infection of the town's water supply. An evacuation is in progress. Please stay in your homes and for your safety. Phone calls, text messages, and internet access will be restricted. We will report back when more information is available. The voice ended abruptly, and the robotic voice started speaking again. This is a civil broadcast from the United States government. As of 9.15am Eastern Standard Time, Martial Law. I turned the radio back off. I looked at my wife and she was terrified. Have any of you drank any of the tap water lately? I asked Sarah and Beth. They all shook their heads in unison. Luckily, all three of us drank a lot of milk and juice. I always cursed how expensive it was having to buy an entire gallon of whole milk and a carton of orange juice every other day. But now I was thanking God for their taste. 
From the second floor of our house, we heard crashing and smashing, and then a deep voice shouting. It sounded like somebody was dragging a body down the stairs. A woman started crying, and then her voice was cut off. What's going on up there, Daddy? My youngest daughter asked, looking up at me with her big blue eyes. She looked so small and helpless in the dim light of the basement. She was holding a brown stuffed rabbit that I had given her when she was a baby, which she had named Dr. Hoppy. I don't know where he got his medical degree from, but he seemed to be doing a good job of keeping her calm, so I appreciated his bedside manner. Sarah, I said, getting down to my knees so that I was on her level and putting my hand on her shoulder. I think there are sick people all around us, but help is on the way. She held her little rabbit up to me. Is Dr. Hoppy going to get sick too? She asked in a whisper. No, Dr. Hoppy is a doctor. He knows more than we do about staying healthy. I said, smiling at her. And then something started smashing against the basement door, causing all of us to jump. I chambered around into my Benelli, the 12-gauge giving a satisfying ringing noise. I looked up the rickety stairs, waiting. At this distance, I could easily shoot through the basement door with a slug, but I wanted to make sure that it wasn't a police officer or military personnel, or even just a neighbor looking for help. I wished that I had cameras in the house. But as I was looking up the stairs, something came crashing through the small basement window instead. My wife and daughter jumped, yelling. Get behind me, I said, turning the gun in the direction of the noise. I saw what looked like a toddler still wearing a cartoon character on his clothing, but something was very wrong with his body and face. Tendrils of gray and red roots seemed to grow out of his body, crisscrossing across his skin. One eye cried red as he looked at me, and the other had tiny gray worms crawling out of it. I could still see his pupils though and apparently he could see me, for he began to run forward towards me at a superhuman speed. His mouth was opened, letting blood red vines with spikes shoot out in my direction. Even though I watched the spectacle with open mouthed horror, my instincts still kicked in enough for me to know that I needed to put him down. Without thinking, I fired the shot. Direct hit. He was so small that the exit of the slug blew the entire back of his head off. He fell back as if in slow motion. I saw gray and red tendrils whipping around crazily, moving much faster and more erratically as he passed. Some of them morphed at an increased rate, sending thorns and spikes shooting out, and others wrapped around its body as if trying to protect him from further damage, but it was too late. Within seconds of him laying on the ground, the energy behind the tendrils seemed to weaken. The spikes receded back inside and they began to fall randomly around and on top of his body, no longer moving. A few new smaller tendrils shot out from the wound, but those also quickly lost energy, instead of falling back into what was left of his face. Behind me, Sarah and Beth were still crying. I turned, seeing Sarah burying her face in Dr. Hoppy trying not to look. Beth stared at me with wide, unseeing eyes. She reminded me of pictures that I had seen of shell-shocked soldiers returning from a horrifying war. 
In all the excitement, I had forgotten about the basement door. I heard metal clattering from the direction of the door and then the lock slowly turned. The door swung open and what I saw there was not another person possessed by the vines like I had expected. A robed man with a bone-like face stared down at me. His hands looked skeletal, almost like deformed claws and his eyes were pure black. He smiled at me, an inhumanly wide grin that showed multiple blood-red tongues flicking in different directions. I have seen you, he said in a voice that sounded like thousands of voices swarming and echoing on top of one another. You will make it, Jason. I will return to you at the end of your journey. You are the only one with the ability to make it out of here. What about my family? I said, tears clouding my vision pointing at my daughter and wife. The hooded man shrugged. That depends on your actions, he said. It is no concern of mine. My concern is that you make it out. Much relies on your survival, but I do not intercede with mortal affairs much. I only came to give you a warning. What warning? I asked, feeling frantic. Do not trust the man in white. And with that he turned, beginning to walk away slowly. The black robe that he wore rippled and shimmered as if it were made of silk. Wait, what's your name? I asked, but he ignored my question. I looked at my Beth and Sarah who were staring at me open-mouthed. Within seconds, the man's footsteps faded into nothing. I think it's time we got out of here, I said to them. I prepare a few backpacks with some food and water. We'll have to split whatever we can carry between the three of us. I need to go get some things from upstairs before we leave, though. I think that we might have a long journey ahead of us. My wife nodded, going through these storage supplies and finding a few bags. I didn't want to leave them alone for even an instant, so I stayed with them while she packed. We gave Sarah a small bag with a few cans of food and water. Sarah also put Dr. Hoppy in it. Sorry, Dr. Hoppy. Sarah said, frowning as she zipped up the backpack. I know you don't like small spaces, but it's only for a little while. Beth and I split heavier bags with more food and water, but we didn't overload them, as I had the feeling that we might need to run. After we finished preparing in the basement, we went upstairs. I saw bodies all over our kitchen. I recognized the bodies of our neighbors and a couple of the people from town. They all had gray and red vines sticking out of their skin, unmoving. Some of them had red pouring from both eyes while others had mostly clear faces. Regardless, it looked like the robed man had torn them limb from limb. There were arms with red vines coming out of bones, heads with gray tendrils loosely hanging down from their throats, and other horrors that I don't want to reflect on here. I covered Sarah's eyes as we let her past it all, going upstairs. I found a phone up there, a special model with encryption and VPNs installed that I kept for emergencies. My technologically savvy friend had given it to me, and now I tried turning it on and connecting. I was able to get through some of the government restrictions and connect to a weak internet source. No calls or text messages would go through, however. But I wanted to at least write up my story to let people know what was happening. 
the government will almost certainly try to cover up what is happening in our town. I plan on getting my family out and letting the world know the truth. However, no matter the cost. I led my family outside to our SUV, keeping the shotgun up and scanning both sides of the front door before they followed me out. I saw endless carnage on the street. Multiple cars had crashed into buildings, garages, and fences. And my neighbor's house was now an inferno of fire that sent out billowing black clouds into the air. Further down the street, I heard explosions. They were coming from the direction of the nearby gas station. I quickly shepherded my wife and daughter to the back seats, slamming the doors and running up front to the driver's seat, laying the shotgun on the passenger seat, pointing towards the door. Backing out of the driveway, I nearly ran over my neighbor. She had hobbled out of the backyard of the burning house, waving her arms at me and shrieking something incomprehensible. Putting down the window, I pulled right up next to her. Mrs. Lucas was a widow who lived alone. Her husband of 40 years had been killed the previous year. He always volunteered to help the poor in the inner city, cooking at soup kitchens and trying to connect the homeless with social services as part of his church community outreach program. One night when he was leaving the soup kitchen, some guy had shot him in the chest and stolen his wallet while he bled out on the sidewalk. Cameras had caught a fuzzy image of the young man, but he was never identified. Mrs. Lucas had never fully recovered from the death of her husband, but my family and I regularly went over to check on her and spend time with her. Mrs. Lucas, I said, putting down my window. She nodded at me, tears brimming in her eyes. My house, she said simply, pointing to the blazing structure fire behind her. Everything I owned was in there. We need to get out of here, Mrs. Lucas, I said, pointing to the empty passenger seat. My wife and daughter joined in the chorus, saying, Come on, Mrs. Lucas, come with us. She wiped the tears out of her eyes, limping slowly around the car and getting into the seat slowly sighing as she did so. As soon as she slammed the door shut, I pulled off quickly, the tires squealing. I wanted to get as far away from the fires and carnage as I possibly could, if there was anywhere to go. As I drove down the road, the fire of Mrs. Lucas's house getting further and further behind us, a massive explosion rocked the street. A small mushroom cloud of black smoke peaked above the houses further ahead. Oh God, that was the gas station, wasn't it? My wife asked. I looked in the rearview mirror. She was holding my daughter who looked shell-shocked, staring straight ahead without seeing. Yeah, I think so, I agreed. I wanted to avoid that area, so I turned left, taking side streets instead. I knew a few ways out of town through a little travel to forest roads. I didn't know if the military would be blocking major thoroughfares. And I really didn't want to find out. I still had hoped that they wouldn't have every small dirt road that wound through fields or forests blocked off, however. As we drove further away from the houses past tobacco fields that extended for acres on both sides of us, Mrs. Lucas started making strange coughing noises. It sounded like she was choking. 
I looked over and saw her bent over in her seat. I couldn't see her face, but she looked like she was in agony, trying to curl into a fetal position as much as her old body could allow. I pulled the car over quickly, parking in front of a barn. Mrs. Lucas, I said, putting my hand on her shoulder. Please, she said between choking sobs. Water. I ran out of the car, taking the shotgun with me for good measure and opening the back door. My wife quickly passed me a bottle of water and I handed it to Mrs. Lucas. She quickly sat up and started chugging the whole thing rapidly. She didn't look good. Her face was turning a strange yellow color like the jawed face of a lifelong alcoholic, and her hands were clenched in a tight fist. I could see small trickles of red where her fingernails bit into her palms. As soon as she had finished the water, she sat there hyperventilating for a moment. I thought that she was crying, but then I realized one of her eyes had a trickle of blood running down from it. She turned to look at me and I saw that her pupils were different sizes, one of them fully dilated and the other a tiny pinpoint. I backed away instinctively. I'm sorry, she said, seeming to regain some control over herself. I don't know what came over me. It must be all the stress of the day. Mrs. Lucas, you didn't drink the tap water, did you? She looked at me sideways. Well, of course I drink the water from my house, young man. She said her other eye beginning to bleed now, too. But I filtered it. Don't you know drinking bottled water is bad for the environment? Too much trash in the landfills and the oceans. She shook her head slowly and lazily from side to side as she spoke. Her voice seemed to deepen and gurgle. I looked back at my wife and daughter. Get out of the car, I whispered, a sense of horror overtaking me, but it was too late. A gray, sickly tendril shot out of Miss Lucas's mouth. It began to whip around wildly, my wife and daughter screaming as they felt for the door handles. Miss Lucas's arms began to make strange, snapping noises, lengthening as she raised them towards me. It looked like the bone and joints were being broken and reforming in front of my eyes. Purplish bruises and busting capillaries forming all the way up and down the skin of her arms. Her fingers were turning black, the nails turning blue, as if she were dying or already dead. I backed up out of the car, slowly raising the shotgun. My wife and daughter still weren't out of the car, but I was out of time. Get down! I yelled at them, hoping that they heard me in time. And then I pulled the trigger. The slug blew a hole the size of a grapefruit in Miss Lucas's chest, and then kept going, shattering the passenger side window. Her mouth opened, the jaw disengaging like a snake's as she hissed, spewing a fountain of red towards me. I moved at the last second as the projectile vomit missed my face by mere inches, falling harmlessly in the cornfield behind me. The smell of gunpowder mixed with something else that I had never smelled before. It was a smell like vomit and ammonia mixed together, and it got stronger the closer that I was to the tendrils. A black fluid with iridescent rainbows shimmering in it leaked out of the damaged tendrils around her chest. Tiny worms swarming and writhing in the alien blood as it soaked the seed and floor of the SUV. 
My ears were ringing from shooting the shotgun, but I could hear the muffled sounds of my wife and daughter still screaming. I pulled open the back door and yanked Sarah out and then gave Beth a hand. Small red tendrils erupted out of Miss Lucas's chest, languidly feeling around the windshield and back seat before seemingly run out of energy, falling limply to the floor of the car. Is Miss Lucas alright? Sarah asked in a little voice looking up at me. She had her little pink backpack on. My wife kneeled down next to her and whispered something in her ear. It felt like I couldn't talk. I just stood there breathing fast. My vision covered in a white shimmering as waves of adrenaline and anxiety overtook me. I did not want to get back into that car. I didn't know how contagious it was, but I remembered the warning on the radio. Don't even wash your hands with the water. Could touching contaminated blood infect me or my family? I didn't know and I didn't want to find out. Come on, I said, grabbing the bags from the back seat and hanging them to my family. We're walking from here. It might be better anyway. The military might be tracking cars by helicopter or satellite. I remembered seeing movies where evil corporations or governments shot anybody who tried to escape a quarantine area, and shivers ran down my spine. Jason, look, my wife said in horror, pointing behind me. I looked at the spot where her trembling finger had pointed. The projectile vomit that Mrs. Lucas had shot before her death had settled into the dirt. A few earthworms writhed on top of the soil, elongating and mutating in front of my eyes. Within seconds, they had grown to a couple feet long, sharp red spikes extruding through their slimy skin. Tiny eyes on stalks were sprouting from the fronts of their bodies at an incredible speed. Dozens of little black orbs that vibrated and searched the surrounding environment. And the new mouths opened beneath the eyes, with teeth as thin as needles poking out from their searching maws. Get back, I said, trying to push my family back from the mutating worms. The worms all responded to the sound of my voice. Raising their heads like snakes who smell prey and a few began slithering in my direction. Run. We all started sprinting down the street. The worms creeped behind us at an unbelievable pace, almost catching up with me even as I sprinted as quickly as I could. As my family and I ran for our lives, I chambered around a buckshot in the shotgun and then turned rapidly and shot at the few worms that were behind us. The spread of the shotgun blast took out all three of them, stopping them instantly. Tendrils a few inches long shot out of their bodies, searching for a moment before falling onto the pavement. I put another round of buckshot in the chamber for good measure, but nothing else moved around us. And then I heard a strange humming coming from further down the road. I turned to my wife. Do you hear that? I asked in a low voice and she nodded. It almost sounds like a Tibetan singing bowl, she said. I looked at her blankly. It's a resonant bowl used for meditation that produces a humming sound. Beth knew all about yoga and meditation. I don't like it, I said. Walking forward slowly, I saw a crowd of people standing around in a circle in a grassy field, all of them with their mouths hanging open, their faces pointing up at the sky. The writhing tendrils of the infection burst out of their skins, 
endlessly surging in the warm air. Sometimes the tendrils would wrap around one another, and toward the center of the circle, one thick vine sent out from the chest of every monster intertwined. A smell like starter fluid and vomit rose from the group, so pungent that I could almost taste it. Before I knew what was happening, I felt the muzzle of a rifle push into the side of my head. A man dressed in all black was hiding at the edge of the tobacco field. He had used my temporary distraction to gain the advantage over me. Drop the gun slowly, he whispered through his gas mask, and don't make a sound. If you draw those things over here, you and your family will surely die. He spoke calmly, equally, as if he were stating a fact rather than making a threat. I slowly put my hands up, the shotgun loosely held on my right one, and then I tossed it in a patch of grass. It fell with a soft thud. None of the members of the mutated group had noticed the sound, however. Do you see them? The man with the gun whispered to me. They're forming a hive mind. They're exchanging genetic materials. This thing evolves fast. How do you know? I asked and he only chuckled. Come on, he said, lowering his gun. You and your family are to come with me. There is a scientific installation nearby that is still quarantined and secure. We are taking the uninfected survivors there until we get new orders. I looked behind me at my family going over to join him. His words struck a chord of anxiety in me. Until we get new orders, but I wasn't sure why. What's your name? I asked the man quietly. And you can just call me Axe, he said, and I already know yours, Jason. We have been monitoring cameras located all over the town, as well as tracking the movement of vehicles by satellite. The government plans to restore order in this town block by block, and if it can't be done, then this place is going to be wiped off the map. There could be no risk of this thing spreading beyond here. Behind X in the tobacco fields, I saw two more soldiers dressed in all black. They were also wearing gas masks and carrying M4 carbines with sound suppressors screwed in at the ends. X nodded at them and made some sort of hand gesture, and the two other soldiers fell in at both sides of myself and my family. It involved going through the field on the opposite side of the road as the hive of monsters. As we moved, the crunching of our feet in the grass, the only sound besides, that humming coming from the field, I realized that the sky was darkening. Flashes of lightning lit up the horizon. I heard someone screaming from the field across the road. My first thought was that one of the monsters had spotted us and was alerting its fellows as to our presence. All of us whipped around the soldiers raising their weapons but I quickly realized it was highly unlikely any of the monsters could even see us. We were hidden behind a curve in the tobacco field, looking through some of the plants to observe them, and the rapid darkening of the sky would likely make it even harder to spot our silhouettes. Instead of the monsters looking for others outside their group, two new ones were bringing someone in. I squinted, trying to see harder. The prisoner looked like a skinny young man or maybe a teenager, he had wiry black hair and glasses. He shrieked and fought against his captors the entire way, but they easily overpowered him. The tendrils of the captors had wrapped around his arms and hands like living chains, 
They otherwise did not touch him, except for a small gray vine that would escape from one of their mouths, caress the hostage's cheeks and forehead, and then disappear back into the host's body. It almost gave me the impression that the hive mind wanted to keep him calmer, and maybe it was just sampling the goods. As soon as the hostage was within a few feet of the group, the circle scattered, seeming to regain much of their individuality. The prisoner looked around feverishly and then seemed to notice our group. I don't know if it was the glint of some light off one of the rifles or some flash of color from our clothing, but he looked right at us. And then he began screaming, the vines wrapping faster and faster around his legs. Help me, he said, trying to point as a gray tendril wrapped around his mouth, gagging him. The monsters in the group noticed his agitation and yelling and also looked over in our direction. I was trying to crouch lower to the ground. The soldiers were feverishly whispering to each other. And then as one member gnawed open a red tendril with his bare teeth, others began running in our direction. I saw the gray tendril wrapped around the hostage's mouth pull away, and the one issuing the black fluid it took its place. It forced the young man to drink, wrapping underneath his lips as fluid spurted out of it in an arterial fashion. I nearly gagged just watching it. We have to go, X said to me, the first glint of excitement and bloodlust in his eyes. I stood up quickly, watching Sarah and Beth jog in front of me hand in hand as X led the way. The other two soldiers stayed behind us and I caught glimpses of them checking our backs multiple times. The monsters were gaining on us, and if we were going much further, I had a feeling that we wouldn't make it, at least not without a gunfight. Those nearest to us out of the group began to run at a superhuman speed. My daughter could not keep up with the soldier, so I picked her up and began to sprint. It was clear that we were not getting away. But then I heard sniper rifles begin shooting from the forest up ahead, and I sighed in relief my heart bursting in my chest from the effort of sprinting while carrying a 40-pound child in a backpack full of supplies. The forest was only 30 or 40 yards away. The soldiers stopped, let my wife and I pass by and then began to open fire with the rifles. The gunshots were deafening even though none of them were using full-auto bursts. Between the hidden snipers and the three soldiers, they were taking down five or six of the mutated people every few seconds. There was a screaming sound from one of the monsters, like a wailing infant, and the rest of the group immediately stopped and scattered in all directions. A few more shots rang out and a couple more bodies fell across the field, but then everything was quiet. All I could hear was the ringing in my ears and the heavy breathing of my daughter and myself. I got a bottle of water out of my backpack, drinking the whole thing and giving another bottle to her. She just stared at it for a few seconds. Why are we getting out of here? She asked. My wife looked down at her in surprise. Of course we're getting out of here, my wife said. Why would you think otherwise? My daughter pointed to the bodies littering the field. None of those people are getting out of here, Sarah said. I saw the three soldiers entering the forest. X was looking at us with an inscrutable expression. We have a much larger group headed this way, he said to us. Satellite imagery shows that it may have been over around 500 people. Apparently the first phase has ended and the second has begun. 
What do you mean by first phase? My wife asked him. He shrugged. The chaotic nature of the transformations, some of the mutants ripping others apart, total psychotic breakdowns in predisposed individuals. All of that had kept them disorganized, easy to kill as long as you had weapons. But if they are forming into larger and larger high minds, then that will not continue. It means that our time to get out of here is quickly running out. He started walking forward again, motioning for us to follow. But luckily the scientific installation is only a few hundred yards away. We have time to get there and barricade it if necessary. They may not even know where it is or how to find it. There's nothing out this way, I replied. This is all woods and fields for the next few miles and then you get to the national park, which is another 20 miles of forest. X shook his head, smiling slightly. You'll see. The other two soldiers didn't talk at all. They looked unhappy and were reloading their guns. We followed X on a deer trail and a few minutes later entered an abandoned barn. He walked directly to the center of it, clearing off ancient-looking hay and twigs, and revealed a number pad, where he entered a series of numbers so fast that I couldn't follow the sequence. There was a quiet beeping sound and a round concrete entrance opened up, revealing a ladder that went into a well-lit hallway a story below. We climbed down one by one. My wife, daughter, and I were redirected into a room with a couch and a television. The cable and power down here had apparently never been affected like it was in the rest of the town. I opened up my phone and found that they had open Wi-Fi access down here and began to write up my story. After a few minutes, the soldiers came back, all of them having a sour expression on their faces. The head scientists are MIA for now, X said frowning. We will have to wait. I have no idea where they are or what they're doing. They were supposed to wait here for rescue. Part of my orders are to get them out of here. I nodded to him, handing out peanut butter crackers and water to my family while I finished writing the story on my phone. X didn't seem to notice or care. Across the facility I heard another beeping sound and the faint noise of a door opening. The echo of muffled voices reached out to us across the polished hallways and laboratory rooms. Apparently the wait was over. I saw the soldiers coldly look up at the two scientists in lab coats as they walked into the building. One was a tall man with blonde hair and blue eyes and the other a shorter Asian woman. The man walked up to me extending his hand. Sorry to meet you under such horrible circumstances, he said with a half smile. We're doing everything we can to deal with this issue, those monstrosities outside. You are Jason Emery, right? I nodded, not trusting the man at all. Where were you two? I asked. Oh, just taking some samples from the nearby stream, he said. The Asian woman looked away. My name is Dr. Booth and this is Dr. Lau. She looked back at us, nodding her head quickly. She looked incredibly uncomfortable to be in the room with us. Are we being evacuated? My wife asked. The doctor looked over at her, narrowing his eyes slightly as if Beth were a fly that he wanted to swat away. And then the charismatic half-smile returned to his face. Of course, he said, his tone one of total confidence. 
The National Guard, the Army, and the Green Berets are on their way. We are simply trying to evacuate as many of the uninfected to a secure location as possible before undertaking such a large evacuation procedure. But the Air Force is sending countless helicopters as we speak. I saw X and the other two soldiers look away, their faces still cold and emotionless. I had a feeling that I was being fed a line of BS, but to what end? I didn't know. I heard screaming, muffled but distinct, coming from the direction where we had entered the underground laboratory. There were panicked shrieks, gunshots, and slamming noises as I heard the hatchway open with a soft beeping noise. Help us, a male voice cried. They're coming. His words were drowned out in a deep gurgling sound as if he were choking. I couldn't see the hatchway entrance, but I heard a thudding sound, as if a body were being dropped down the ladder. The soldiers looked at each other before rising to their feet and running towards the hatchway. What's going on? My wife asked. Just stay here, Dr. Booth said. The military has it under control. It didn't sound like the military had it under control in the slightest. I heard a few male voices screaming and then automatic rifle fire began echoing throughout the tunnels. I heard X yelling, Retreat! I pulled my wife and daughter closer to me on the sofa. Oh, I think we need to get out of here, my wife whispered to me. My daughter had taken Dr. Hoppy, her stuffed rabbit, out of her backpack and was hugging it tightly. Daddy, I don't want to be here anymore, Sarah said to me looking up at me with her big eyes. I nodded, grabbing both of their hands and rising. We could use the distraction to try to run further in. I heard more and more commotion coming from the hatchway, and then suddenly X tore down the hallway, blood gushing from a huge slice in his forehead. It soaked the entire right side of his face. Dr. Lau and Dr. Booth were in the corner of the room whispering to each other, and I nodded to my wife and daughter pulling them up. We took off down the hallway in the direction that X had gone. Dr. Booth tried yelling something after us, but I ignored him completely. I saw drops of blood in the direction that X had run, like breadcrumbs that would hopefully lead us to the correct path. I couldn't believe how huge this underground laboratory really was. It was like a maze and without the drops of blood to follow, I would have become impossibly lost in minutes. After a few minutes, I saw X up ahead, seeming to slow down significantly. He was limping now, constantly wiping blood out of his face so that he could see. Somewhere along the way, he had lost his rifle. He pulled out his pistol, putting it to his head. Wait! I screamed at him. He looked back at me. It's too late for me, he said. I'm infected and I can feel it. Feels horrible, like something's grabbing my heart and squeezing it. He coughed up a wad of bloody phlegm, spitting it on the floor before wiping his mouth quickly. His other eye had started to bleed, but he still stared through the trickle of blood at me as he put the gun to his temple and he pulled the trigger. He fell as if in slow motion, his remnants spraying the white painted walls of the hallway. I heard footsteps running behind me and saw Dr. Booth coming up. Dang it, he wasn't supposed to die, Dr. Booth said. I sprinted ahead to the corpse of Axe, grabbing the pistol out of his hand. 
The words of the black-robed man who had come into my house at the beginning of all this rang in my head. Do not trust the man in white. I turned around to raise the pistol towards him, but he was one step ahead of me. He had already grabbed my daughter, and he had a small revolver that he was holding up to her head. He must have had it in a hidden holster. How about you drop that gun before I do what I want to do to her? The doctor said, smiling like a skeleton. His charismatic persona was gone now, and the monster underneath had been revealed. His eyes looked as dark as black holes. If you kill her, I'll kill you, I said raising the gun at him. I wasn't giving up the only leverage that I still had here. My wife was standing a few feet next to him, her eyes haunted and shell-shot. My daughter stood there like a mannequin just looking down at her shoes. I wondered what kind of psychological trauma she would have to live with after all this was over, if we survived. Why don't you tell us what this all is about? I don't believe that you had nothing to do with it. He laughed uproariously, but his eyes didn't laugh. He stayed dark and flat. You're not a dumb man, he said. I'm surprised you didn't figure it out earlier. I'm the one who released the pathogen into the town's water supply. But why? I asked. Why would you want to do that to an entire town? What? Kill them? He repeated. I never wanted to kill anyone. Though surely to make an omelet, you need to crack a few eggs. I think that we all know that. We had originally found the alien fungus, if you even call it a fungus, in a meteorite that landed in Antarctica. It appears in the world where this organism evolved. The differences between fungi, plants, and animals are not as distinctive as on Earth. On its own, the fungi can move, breathe, and even hunt small animals. But more interestingly, this fungi also has the ability to overtake any animal life and create a hive mind out of them. They also take memories and skills from the individual members of the group and use it for further ends of the hive. In our early experiments, we found that certain leaders of the hive mind, the soldiers and kings and queens, produce a substance that reverses cancer, injuries, even death, and other members of the hive. We call it the royal jelly, just like in bee colonies, but this is far more monumental of a discovery. If we allow the fungus to reproduce among large groups of humans and reach its natural state, you can find the alpha organisms among the hive, harvest the royal jelly, and use it to reverse aging, heart disease, cancer, and countless other diseases. Can you imagine the potential scientific value such a discovery would have? It could potentially keep people alive forever, at least those with value to the world. And how do you know that it wouldn't just turn the patient into one of those things? I asked. How do you know this royal jelly doesn't just make you a slave to the hive mind? He shrugged. It never did in animal studies, the doctor said. Now that you understand, why don't we both put down the guns? You realize that with this kind of scientific advance, your daughter could live for centuries. Just one more question, I asked. Did the U.S. government know you released this alien fungus into the water supply? He laughed at this. The U.S. government is too slow and fat to move quickly, Dr. Booth said. They gave me funding for animal studies, but no, I took it upon myself. 
That was the last thing that I heard him say. At that point, my wife quietly came up from behind him. She yanked his gun back with all of her strength in her right hand, while slamming an open folding knife into his eye with her left hand. The shock and pain made him fire a single round, but it went high into the top of the wall. My daughter screamed, falling to the floor and crawling towards me. Daddy, she said, and I ran up to her, scooping her up and checking her for injuries. She seemed totally unharmed other than some scrapes and bruises. The doctor was screaming something it sounded like, You, but with all the blood running into his mouth, it was almost incomprehensible. My wife had taken his gun and pointed it at the back of his head. Should we kill him? She asked. I shook my head. You should take Sarah and go forward, I said. I'll take care of him. As they walked forward, I took the pistol that I had gotten from the body of X and raised it, pointing directly at the center of the doctor's head. He was blubbering and shrieking, but in his final moments, a certain clarity came over his one good eye. He stared at me with hatred as I fired, blowing it open and covering the ceiling with what was left of him. Even a little bit of it splashed back on me, tiny droplets that scattered over my mouth and face. As I looked around at the mess, everything that had gone on, I had a totally absurd thought. Well, someone's going to have a heck of a time trying to clean this up. I thought to myself, laughing like a maniac. We wandered through the hallways for hours before accidentally stumbling upon Dr. Lau in a room. She was sitting in the corner drinking a cup of tea. She looked up surprised. As she took in the three of us, covered in blood and scratches, she frowned. Is he dead? She asked simply. I nodded and she sighed. Oh, thank God, he was a lunatic, Dr. Booth. I was afraid of him. I always thought that he would try to make me into one of those things without telling me. Maybe putting a drop of it into my tea or something. He became so obsessed with seeding the fungus into larger and larger animals that... I knew it was only a matter of time before he tried infecting humans. I had no idea that he would do it to a whole town now. She stopped and sipped some more from the green tea. Do you know a way out of here? I asked, holding my daughter close to my side. She nodded. You know, he was going to take you and your family as subjects, she said, purposely infest your whole family. I nodded at that, thinking back to the warning of the black-robed man. And yes, there's a way out that leads to the middle of the forest. I'll take you there, but I'm not going with you. I'm staying down here until the reinforcements arrive, if they ever do. We followed her through the labyrinth of halls and rooms until we reached a ladder at the end of one hall. At the top was a hatch. The code is 339. Good luck. She turned and went back in the direction that she had come from. I climbed through it, helping my daughter and wife out. We looked around and saw a seemingly endless forest. Luckily, I had grown up around here and I knew a lot of these woods like the back of my hand. I knew that we were in a state park that bordered the tobacco fields at the north of town and that the park had trails extending to the surrounding towns. It was only a matter of time before finding one of the right ones. We hiked for miles, eventually coming to a clearing. In it, I saw another circle of mutated humans, their tendrils intertwined in the middle. 
Beneath it, I saw the corpses of Axe, half of his face missing. They allowed drops of some black liquid to fall into his open mouth and he began to stir. Tendrils shot out of his shattered face, sewing up the hole and leaving a writhing mass of stubby gray spikes in its place. In low grunts, he pointed to various directions. The tallest and strongest members of the group ran in those directions. I heard sniper rifles firing and then men screaming, and within minutes, everything was silent. I thought to myself that this must be the royal jelly that the doctor was so obsessed with. It appeared that it could even bring back certain infected individuals from the dead. The hive mind still gathered and I wondered if they would use the knowledge taken from Axe and the other soldiers to break any military quarantine and expand beyond the borders of this destroyed town. As I thought about this, I saw all the members of the circle moving their heads up in unison. They turned their faces up to the sky, their mouths open, as a soft rain began to fall. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.